I'm Liz Wall. And I'm Jessica Aro. Welcome to our podcast dedicated to countering Russia's information war against Ukraine and the world's democracies. Today, we speak to a Ukrainian journalist about the heroic Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists of Ukraine that continue to risk their lives to report the truth. Also, how Russia is increasingly resembling Nazi-like behavior as it weaponizes the word Nazi to justify its war of aggression, from filtration camps to its rhetoric and evidence of war crimes. Our guest today is Olga Tokariuk, a Ukrainian independent journalist and disinformation researcher based in Kyiv. She was formerly with Romatske, a Ukrainian independent news outlet. And as a Ukrainian journalist, she's also a Pulitzer Prize winner, as the Pulitzer Board has awarded Ukrainian journalists the prize for their courage, endurance, and commitment to truthful reporting during Vladimir Putin's ruthless invasion of their country and his propaganda war in Russia. Welcome, Olga. Hi, Olga. Hi, thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we are so we're so uh, happy to be able to speak with you today. And yes, as Jessica just mentioned, the Pulitzer announced credits uh, for Ukrainians for their reporting, quote, despite bombardment, abductions, occupation, and even deaths in their ranks, they have persisted in their efforts to provide an accurate picture of a terrible reality, doing honor to Ukraine and to journalists around the world. This is from the Pulitzer announcement. So I want to ask you, Olga, first off, how has your life changed since Russia invaded your home country? How has it impacted your life and your work as a journalist? Well, you know, when I heard this news about the Pulitzer Prize Award, I was thinking about all those my courageous colleagues who are now working on the front line. Some of them were never war reporters before. It's their first experience. They didn't choose to be war reporters. They didn't choose to be, uh, you know, on the front line of this war, but they are there. They are telling the world what is happening. They are telling about Russian war crimes in Ukraine. They are documenting all the terrible things that are happening uh, also in order to uh, you know, uh, have justice in the future. In fact, I'm very, uh, I'm admiring these colleagues and I'm very proud to know so many of them. While uh, me personally, uh, I'm not on the front line. I have to be frank with you uh, because also of the safety of my family and of my daughter, um, uh, I'm in Western Ukraine since the start of the invasion. This is a relatively safe part of Ukraine. Of course, no part of Ukraine is completely safe at the moment. And there were missile strikes not too far from where I based in Western Ukraine. However, of course, it's not comparable to the situation in, you know, in, in Kharkiv or in Donetsk or Luhansk regions, not even in Odessa that uh, has been targeted heavily uh, by Russian missiles in the recent days. Uh, but, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, as you as you said, uh, so many journalists uh, are l- risking their lives and sometimes losing their lives in this war is, um, is remarkable. And Russians have been targeting journalists deliberately 
uh, in the areas around Kyiv. You know, they killed uh, my colleague Max Levin, a brilliant photographer, one of the best Ukrainian photographers who had vast experience with uh, working in war zones in Donbass since 2014. He was killed near Kyiv in early March while uh, on assignment, uh, killed deliberately by, uh, you know, uh, gunshots, despite wearing recognition marks, despite uh, wearing um, a bulletproof vest and helmet. He was uh, he was shot in the face, basically. So the, the, the part of his body that was covered, Russians shot, uh, shot in that part. So I, th uh, I think this award, of course, is first of all, the award um, who is most deserved by those Ukrainian journalists who, you know, have been risking their lives and who have been and who are still on the front, front line of this war. Yes, it appears that Russia is deliberately targeting journalists, uh, as you say. You've also, you've been covering all parts of this war, um, some of the most uh, heinous war crimes and evidence mounting coming from the inside, things like forced deportations, rape, mass graves. Um, can you tell us about these sorts of crimes being committed and the reports that you're hearing? Well, from the relative safety of Western Ukraine, you know, um, while I'm not uh, on, on the front line, but I'm still speaking on a daily basis with Ukrainians who are victims and survivors of Russian war crimes uh, in Ukraine. And I also partnered with the Ukrainian human rights defenders, uh, also my former colleagues who used to work as journalists before Russian occupation of Crimea and Donbass, and then they launched a, a human rights uh, media initiative and every week we are uh, conducting also Twitter spaces with them, speaking about Russian war crimes, focusing every week on a specific war crime. In the future, we'll be also focusing on specific regions, like what is happening, for example, now in Kherson region in southern Ukraine that is that has been under Russian occupation since uh, the first day of this war and where some of the worst uh, crimes and human rights abuses are being committed uh, to this day. Uh, so the, the range of these crimes and human rights abuses committed by Russians uh, since the start of this war is huge. You know, it's uh, starting from uh, uh, rape, sexual violence that not only was committed against women, but also against children, against men, against elderly people and uh, forced deportations, millions of Ukrainians, more than one million of Ukrainians have been forcibly deported to Russia. Many of those people are stuck in Russia. They do not have money. They sometimes do not have their documents. They cannot leave uh, the country. They've been sent to some far away, far eastern parts of Russia or you know, southern parts of Russia bordering, bordering China. And those people have no contacts there, no relatives, and they have nowhere to go. Uh, some more lucky ones who, uh, you know, had either relatives in Russia or relatives in Ukraine with some international connections, they were able to leave Russian territory either via border with Georgia in the south or via border with Finland or Estonia in the north and go to other countries of uh, uh, the EU mostly. But this is a minority. Most of those people who were deported to Russia are, are there and they cannot, they cannot leave Russia because, as, as I said, they do not have the means to do so. 
And, and of course, there is also an issue and, uh, you know, a problem of uh, forced disappearances. People whose whereabouts are unknown have been kidnapped by Russians either at checkpoints or infiltration camps that uh, every Ukrainian has undergone uh, through these filtration camps to leave, for example, uh, uh, Mariupol. And, uh, and many people do not uh, uh, Pass this so-called filtration procedure. Russians are checking the content of their mobile phones. Russians are checking people's belongings. They uh, tell people to uh, take off their clothes and check for their tattoos or the scars on their skin. They would somehow um, reveal uh, either their loyalty to Ukraine in, in the case of tattoos or in the case of you know the marks on their skins or scars, uh, the fact that they might have been fighting for, uh, you know, Ukrainian armed forces in the past. They could be veterans of the Ukrainian armed forces or uh, Ukrainian police or, or, or whatever. So many people do not pass this filtration procedure. And some of, you know, the most heartbreaking stories of the of the last days is uh, the story of a medical, um, a military doctor, military medic from uh, Mariupol, a woman who was separated with her four-year-old daughter in one of these filtration camps. So a girl uh, was sent without her mom to uh, Ukrainian-controlled territory uh, after the evacuation of civilians from uh, Azovstal. But her mother uh, was, uh, you know, she just disappeared after this filtration camp and we don't know where she is at the moment. Thank you, Olga, and your colleagues for your work and resistance. I feel that other Western journalists should really follow uh, and take example of your courage and perseverance. It's amazing, truly, and really gives strength to journalists across borders. So I would like to ask about the Kremlin's information warfare targeted to Ukraine for so many years because it's so disturbing how long they have conducted the information warfare already back in 2014-2015. The Russian trolls were disgracing and trying to uh, paint black images of Ukrainians as uh, Nazis and fascists. Why do you think this has been going on and so systematic for such a long time? Well, uh, Jessica, you know a lot about Russian trolls, and I know that you were, you know, harassed by them. And uh, because of your brilliant investigative work uh, that you have been done on discovering, you know, and uncovering uh, their uh, troll farms. Um, well, why Russians are doing that? This is a part of their uh, of so-called hybrid warfare that Russia is using. You know, Russia is not only waging a conventional war; it's also waging a war in the information space. And its uh, main goal in terms of uh, Ukraine was always to uh, discredit Ukraine as an independent state, as a sovereign state, to portray it as a failed, corrupt state that is unworthy of the Western support. And I think now, uh, especially, we are seeing that Russian efforts to, uh, you know, uh, discredit Ukraine, they are continuing uh, with this aggression. And the main focus now is really to undermine this huge support that Ukraine is, has been receiving since uh, Russian uh, aggression, full-scale Russian aggression began uh, more than uh, two months ago. And, uh, you know, it's also a fact that some uh, countries are more vulnerable 
to Russian disinformation and Russian propaganda than others. And while, of course, it's very difficult for Russians to change the public opinion or change the uh, government support to Ukrainian countries such as the US or the UK, well, they are trying, of course. They are still trying and they have their assets. Even in the mainstream media, people who are repeating Russian talking points, who are repeating Russian propaganda, they are, of course, trying also on social media with a lot of trolls, with a lot of inauthentic accounts that are, you know, uh, spreading uh, fakes and spreading doctored photos and uh, lies about Ukraine. Uh, but they are more successful with that in the countries of the global south, uh, like Brazil, South Africa, India. And we are seeing this massive Russian disinformation uh, effort in India, for example, since the start of this war. I've seen already there was research published on that, that in India uh, there is a huge number of also inauthentic accounts and bots. There was a BBC, I think, research uh, published recently about that, particularly focusing on, on India. But, you know, also the, the Western countries are not immune from that. And uh, uh, I can speak about Italy because that's the country I've been focusing on. I've been, you know, writing about Russian disinformation in Italy in a case of a, a Ukrainian soldier who was sentenced in Italy to 24 years uh, for alleged uh, murder of an Italian photojournalist. And he was acquitted uh, in both uh, appeals court in this, and in the Supreme Court. But the fact that... Uh, such a trial was was held, and the, the trial was the evidence in this trial was mostly based on, uh, you know, evidence from open sources and uh, websites and Russian media such as Russian Today or uh, Sputnik or uh, you know other online uh, sources affiliated with the Russian government. It revealed it was a revelation for me as a journalist of how. Uh, Italy is vulnerable to Russian disinformation. And unfortunately, this is happening still. You know, if you watch uh, the Italian talk shows or you read some of Italian newspapers, of course, not all of them, you will very often see Russian talking points there. You will see not just Russian talking points repeated by Italian experts, but you will see the faces from straight from Russian propaganda TV, such as Vladimir Solovyov, the main Russian propagandist, uh, who's, uh, who's been interviewed several times by Italian television. This didn't happen as far to my, as far as I know in any other EU country that you know the main Russian propagandist in chief was invited to speak on a on a on a mainstream TV station in, in a European country just in Italy this happened well of course the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov who was interviewed by a, an Italian private TV uh, TV station owned by Silvio Berlusconi Lavrov was speaking for one hour without you know any uh, critical question from a, from a journalist so this Again, uh, the goal of this is to uh, blur the, the uh, perception and the understanding of what is happening in Ukraine, that this is a unilateral Russian aggression, that this is a war that has no justification among the general public, and also undermine the support that the Italian government has been providing to Ukraine. There will be elections next year. And Russians are working already, you know, with the uh, political forces, with the public opinion to to shift the the situation in, in their favor at the elections next year. So Italy is just one example, maybe the most remarkable example in the European Union. But the, the tactics that Russians are using there, it's not something unique. It's, it's something that they are doing in, in other countries as well.
Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up this, um, that it's not just the global south, that there, there is a bigger problem in the global south. Because part of your, uh, your war coverage is covering the information war and how Russia's lies have reached even Western countries, Italy in particular, that you've been studying. Um, there are some commentators I notice in the U.S., for example, that think that Russia has so obviously lost the information war in the West and that it is only a global South problem. It's only happening in places like Africa, South America, some parts of Asia. But you just explained uh, Italy as an example. But there's even stories in places like Germany, uh, in Spain, can you tell us about such cases? Uh, can you elaborate on that? Because I think they serve as examples for why Western countries can't get complacent about Russia's information war. Uh, you know, uh, Russians, they have different like methods, how they work with the public opinion and what sort of like also disinformation and talking points they are using. So while it has become like really toxic for the Russian assets that were there before this full scale invasion in Western countries, they were there, they were active. And, and they were endorsing like Russia's position while it has become toxic to, you know, endorse uh, the actions of the Russian government uh, after the full scale invasion. The, the tactic shifted to somehow trying, uh, of course, like uh, do the both sideism, the, the whataboutism trick, like shift the attention from what Russia is doing towards, like, for example, what the US and NATO are doing, shift partly a blame to uh, uh, for this war on the US and on NATO. And another, uh, you know, the tactic is to discredit Ukraine, like focus too much on some uh, uh, you know, uh, um, not uh, news that are portraying Ukraine not in the best light. Like, for example, uh, speak about uh, some looters who were tied to lamp posts in the first days of uh, of the invasion. You know, when Ukrainians were trying to prevent like to the the looting from from happening, and there were some isolated cases of of people who were tied with the scotch, with the, you know the the tape, uh, sticky tape to to the lamp posts. But this was like this were several isolated cases, but they are presented somehow like really hyped over and presented as like this confirmation look ukrainians are no better than russians they are committing like human rights abuses and they are acting in this way while of course it's uncomparable with the atrocities and war crimes that russians have been committing in ukraine and then of course the narrative about ukraine as a nazi country and that the, the far right is present in ukraine and we are seeing you know that uh, the, the fruits of this narrative in a desperate situation of uh, Ukrainian soldiers at Azovstal in Mariupol now. Well, while it is true that the Azov uh, regiment, which used to be Azov battalion, initially uh, comprised some members of far-right uh, uh, um, uh, forces. And, you know, among the founders of the Azov, there were people with uh, far-right thoughts. Uh, this is not the case for Azov now. Azov has been incorporated into the Ukrainian National Guard. It has been institutionalized, and it lost the political uh, part of uh, you know of this movement. There is no ideology now beyond Azov. No political ideology. It's a, a, a one of the best special forces unit in Ukraine. Uh, people were joining it because of its reputation of a really you know, well-trained and strong and professional military unit, not because of its 
far right or whatever other ideology. Now in the Azov, there are people of different political views, there are people of different ethnicities, different nationalities, and it is, you know, not true to describe Azov now as a far right regiment. However, this narrative is so persistent, you know, it has been there for the last eight years. There are a lot of like also doctored fake photos of uh, as of with uh, a swastika flag, that, that photo was very often and is still very often used by the Italian uh, social media users. I see it on Twitter almost like every day, like every time there is a debate in Azov, there is someone who's posting this photo. That photo is fake, you know, and that photo was also shown on the Italian TV, you know, and it's, it's really remarkable how... Uh, the fakes and the doctored images, doctored photos, they are making their way from some uh, marginal, you know, uh, uh, inauthentic Twitter accounts into the mainstream media. It's it's really uh, remarkable. I think there will be studies on that in due time, because this war has really made it like really clear how how, how quickly how quick can this passage can be from some like really uh, marginal, inauthentic, uh, suspicious account on the social media into the mainstream TV uh, that shows uh, this fake things to millions of uh, of viewers. Just to cut the you know the long story short and as of uh, the fact that. Uh, there is, there has been such a, you know, uh, also huge rely, uh, reluctance of uh, Ukraine's Western partners to provide Azov with the, uh, with the weapons, with the training, is also due to this reputation of a far-right battalion that, as I said, has been true at the beginning, but it's not true now. But somehow, you know, the, the, the they were already like discredited. And, and the fact that they are not receiving uh, the help they are pleading for now is also partly stems from this, from the reluctance to be associated with them, to have any, uh, you know, um, affiliation to, to help them. And while uh, there are, like, now the majority of these fighters who are now at Azovstal have, like, nothing to do with, you know, any, like, far-right ideology, they're not helped because of uh, this image that also Russian propaganda and Russian disinformation have made so much effort to to produce you know just recently we found in finland it has penetrated for example the russian diaspora as some uh, russians whatsapp groups content uh, was leaked uh, to publicity so they are there in the group discussing uh, just like some kind of aggressive trolls even uh, how ukrainians are nazis and how they should be confronted and so forth. I'd actually like to ask a little bit more about that, as in Putin's May 9th uh, speech, uh, so-called Victory Day speech, he used it as an opportunity to promote his war uh, in Ukraine and repeat this big lie that invading Ukraine was necessary to defeat Nazis. Uh, What's your reaction Uh, to Putin's speech and spectacle, or should it just be uh, not discussed and dismissed? Well, uh, it was not expected, you know. He just received all those cliches of uh, Russian propaganda that were there for for years. And in fact, when Russia calls someone Nazis, and Russians have recently called Finns Nazi, and they called Swedes Nazi for, uh, you know, your country's desire to, to join NATO. So for Russians, 
Nazi is like every country and every people who does not want to be subjugated to Russia, you know, who does not want to uh, re uh, um, refuse its sovereignty and uh, just to bow down to Russian absurd demands. So they made this word completely devoid of its original meaning. And in fact, it's Russia itself and the Russian regime itself that is displaying Nazi-like characteristics. Even if you look at the uniforms and you know at the at the patches that they were wearing at the uh, rehearsals and at the parade to 9th of May with the Z letter uh, on the like red cloth, red bandage with the Z letter in a circle that really resembles a, a uniform of uh, you know Nazis in, in Germany in the 1930s in the 1940s. So. Uh, and and a lot of uh, you know uh, it's it's not me like if we if we read the historians like Timothy Snyder, he's speaking and he's you know making arguments to support the idea and to support the, his statement that Russian regime is really looking like uh, more and more like Nazi Germany in you know in the 1930s in the 1940s. They are speaking openly about. Uh, the need to subjugate and sometimes like even they mention it like exterminate kill ukrainians and what they are doing in ukraine is really it has uh, all signs of a genocide they not only are uh, abducting torturing killing ukrainians who they consider loyal to the ukrainian state we know that uh, people were detained and tortured uh, on the basis of, uh, you know, uh, that the, they had Ukrainian national flags at their homes or they spoke Ukrainian language or they have uh, like uh, tattoos of the Ukrainian flag or a Ukrainian, uh, uh, you know, a map of Ukraine uh, or uh, Crimea. Uh, we also know that in the areas that Russians uh, are, uh, you know, currently occupying, they are uh, destroying Ukrainian books, school books. They are destroying the monuments to Ukrainian uh, cultural, um, uh, you know, uh, some important figures of the Ukrainian history and culture. Ukrainian writers, uh, they are destroying museums, they are destroying libraries, they are switching uh, the education system into Russian, uh, not just language, but they are bringing in Russian school books and they are forcing the school children in Mariupol, for example, to uh, sing Russian anthem. I think it was a video recently. So uh, very, you know, forced uh, policy of uh, exterminating, destroying everything Ukrainian, uh, that is associated with Ukrainian national state, with the Ukrainian culture, with the Ukrainian language. Uh, so who are Nazis? Yeah, for a long time, because um, I've been covering Russian disinformation for since the initial in invasion of Ukraine there. And what Russia often does is it uses disinformation to accuse other people of, of what it itself is doing. Um, so you can often get an indication of, of what Russia's up to based on um, what they're denying or what they're blaming others of. Um, and it's remarkable with this whole fascist disinformation narrative calling Ukrainian Nazis and in the Victory Day parade saying that it was inevitable and they had no choice because they have to defeat the Nazis. Uh, it, it's a false narrative. Um, but at the same time, it's them that are so blatantly acting like fascists, like textbook examples 
of fascism, external like this external expansion, internal cleansing, and the rhetoric and its actions and its war crimes. It's them that are acting fascists, um, but at the same time blaming Ukraines as being fascist. It's it really is mind boggling. Um, but Olga, at, at every turn, uh, Ukraine, it really continues to surprise the world in its ability to effectively and fiercely defend itself against the Russian invaders. Um, one of the biggest militaries in the world. Are you surprised that Russia was not able to take Kiev as, as predicted? As a Ukrainian, uh, what can you say about the Ukrainian people's ability to keep up its morale and to keep fighting? Yeah, but just, you know, to comment on your point of uh, like the Russians are always accusing other people of what they themselves intend to do. Th this is true. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, Russia is such an enigma. We can't figure it out. What's the Russian thinking? Well, just, you know, read uh, what their media say, read what their officials say, and, and then read it as the declaration of their intentions, because it happens so often, it has been proved over and over again that they are doing like this. You know, they are announcing, they are accusing others of what they are themselves doing or planning to do. And on the point that they are accusing Ukraine to be Nazi, well, you know, my grandfather, he fought in the Red Army as uh, other six million of Ukrainians. Ukraine is one of the countries that suffered the most in World War II, and, you know, uh, both in terms of civilian and military deaths to defeat Nazis. So how can you accuse the country that sacrificed so much, you know, to defeat Nazis in the World War II to be Nazis? How can you uh, accuse the descendants of people who are fighting against Nazis and who want against Nazis to be Nazis? It's, it's absurd. But coming back to uh, your question about Ukrainian resilience, well, uh, I was always sure that there will be a strong resistance. You know, I wrote about it back in, in uh, November last year, back in, in February, in early February this year, before like, Russia launched this full-scale aggression against Ukraine. I knew that uh, there will be huge resistance of the Ukrainian population because I know Ukrainians, you know, and I see how much has been done in this country in order like to make it develop, in order to make it prosper since 2014. So uh, uh, paradoxically, the, the war and the invasion that Russia launched back in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and, you know, the, the war in Donbass, it uh, united and it mobilized Ukrainians and it made clear to many people, although not to everyone, What's at stake? You know, that at stake is the survival of Ukraine as a democracy. And in order to survive, Ukraine should really become uh, stronger as a democracy. It should strengthen its institutions. It should strengthen its civil society. It should be developing and diversifying its economy to integrate closer with the Western world. And there was a lot of progress uh, in all of these areas since 2014. And, you know, being a part also of this vibrant civil society, because journalists, we are a part of the civil society and, and, and reporting on the all the, you know, uh, changes and the reforms uh, in the country, all the incredible people who are, uh, launching small entrepre uh, entrepreneurs or, uh, you know, enterprises, sorry, or, uh, uh, you know, fighting for an education reform or fighting for LGBT rights or, uh, you know, uh, going to protest against laws that they did not agree with, that they saw as discriminatory or um, 
curtailing somehow uh, Ukraine's uh, freedom and democracy, seeing all this and reporting on all this as a journalist, that ma- gave me great confidence that this society uh, will stand up, will rise up, you know, that Ukraine has, uh, and, and that's a huge like difference also with Russia and Belarus, for example, that Ukraine has a really strong civil society. Ukraine has always been this bottom-up system. We've seen the two revolutions, the Orange Revolution of 2004, the Revolution of Dignity uh, of 2013, that Ukrainians rise up and they stand up if they you know, do not agree with the policy of the government, the direction that the government is bringing the country, and they won. And I was sure that, you know, okay, if Russia launches a new like aggression and tries to bring Ukraine back into the past, because what Russians are trying to do, they try to bring Ukraine into the past, into some non-existent entity like Soviet Union. They are, uh, you know, going out with all this uh, Soviet Union red flags. This is so absurd to see in 2022. And Ukraine is so different. You know, the country has changed so much, especially in the last eight years, in terms of its integration with, you know, the the European Union, uh, in terms of its being like closer and closer with the Western world in terms of the economy, but also civil society, human rights, uh, other areas. That, that it was impossible to uh, envision a scenario that, you know, majority of Ukrainians or even a significant parts of Ukrainians will just accept like this Russian drive to bring Ukraine back into autocracy, into some, into the past, into uh, oppression. So th- the resistance was not surprising for me. The fact that Kiev didn't fall was not surprising. Of course, I was as many Ukrainians and foreigners amazed also by the courage of the president Zelensky, who said, like, I need an I need ammunition, not a ride. This was something that really made me personally respect him so much more. You know, I, I wasn't his, iconic. Yeah, <laughs> iconic I wasn't I wasn't uh, you know his like very big supporter before the war, but he really represents Ukrainians. And I think what is the credit is is due to him that he really felt. Uh, the spirit of his people. He was really able to capture, you know, what Ukrainians want and to become like a messenger of the Ukrainian people. So not only like he he united Ukrainians around him, but he also somehow, uh, you know, took inspiration from Ukrainians, from ordinary people and managed to convey their message and their determination to the highest like level, the political level, the global international level. I just want to ask you, Olga, because um, as the war drags on uh, with the political climate in the West, in Europe, this big thing that has been um, is unity. We need unity in the West. We need unity with the U.S. and uh, Europe. Um, The U.S. had just announced this multi-billion dollar package to help Ukraine. and it might, it's going to get divisive. You already see it in American media saying, you know, should we, we, we really be providing this much aid? Um, what is your message to the public, to uh, Western journalists covering Russia's war in Ukraine, um, to other players in this digital era, including tech companies? If you had to sum it up, because I think there's a greater picture. It's about Ukraine, but it's also about fighting against autocracy. It's about truth. It's about democracy. I think the most important thing for everyone to realize is that this is not just the war that concerns Ukraine. This is not just the war to, for Ukraine's uh, survival and, uh, you know, Ukraine's freedom and future. This is the war where 
the future of the all uh, free and democratic world will be decided. Uh, you know, um, it's not just uh, autocratic uh, dictator, uh, dictatorial Russia that is fighting against Ukraine. You know, other autocracies and dictatorships around the world, uh, including China, first of all, they are watching closely what is happening and the outcome of this war, you know, will uh, decide whether they would feel emboldened to attack and undermine uh, democracies worldwide. Um, protecting and ensuring that Ukraine uh, wins in this war will uh, mean that there is a chance for democracies to strive and continue to you know, provide um, life that is not just prosperous, but also life where their human rights are respected, where people have full capacity to, uh, uh, you know, develop themselves and um, make careers and live full lives are ensured. Uh, what lies without state control, without, you know, the repressive machine that is waiting for your own move, lives where people have free will, they can exercise this free will in a full manner. So I think uh, each of us in the, in the free world, in democratic countries, can contribute to Ukrainian resistance, you know, of course, by... Uh, as journalists speaking about the war and you know raising the awareness about Ukraine's struggle, uh, separating uh, truth from false things. Th this is especially important as as Russia is again you know focusing on using this information to dissolve the Western unity, to dissolve uh, Western support to, uh, for Ukraine. Um, putting pressure on the government to, uh, you know, continue supporting Ukraine, continue providing it with weapons and, and everything else that it needs to uh, uh, liberate its territories and, and kick Russia's, uh, Russia out. And the, uh, the big tech companies that you mentioned, uh, I think they also have special responsibility in all this because their platforms and, you know, their, uh, the tools that they have created are being abused and used by Russians also to spread their propaganda and disinformation and more effort and more attention on behalf of these platforms uh, is needed to combat that, you know, to identify that. There are so many researchers around the world, mostly in small teams, they do not have a lot of funding and definitely they do not have access to huge financial resources that big tech companies have who work on identifying, you know, these networks of disinformation, who work on identifying trolls, who expose them in, the, in their research, in their investigations. But very often, big tech companies fail to, to take that into account and to uh, actually, you know, take action. So there is information, there are investigation, there is research, there are people capable of doing that. The only thing that is lacking is the reaction of the big tech and the this, you know, decisive action. Thank you uh, for joining us today. Thank you for this insightful discussion, uh, as well as your ongoing battle for freedom and uh, democracy on behalf of all of us. Uh, thank you so much, Olga. Thank you. Thank you also for your work, uh, for, you know, raising the awareness about dangers of uh, disinformation and propaganda, because unfortunately, so many people in the West still underestimate this problem. They think that it's not an issue. And so many journalists as well. I think only now some of them are realizing how we as journalists are also 
exposed to that and so uh, you know also the, on the about the responsibility that we have uh, to inform our audience in a correct manner to double check our sources to be aware you know that where the information is coming from and also to avoid this false balance when the facts um, are put on an equal footing with the, with the lies and with disinformation it's a trap that many journalists are still falling into in many countries of the west Absolutely. And that's um, one thing that Jessica and I are, are dedicated to doing is shining a spotlight on the information war. That's why the podcast is called Information War. And we're so thankful that you could share your firsthand experiences over there in Ukraine. I know your life has been turned upside down, but we are so grateful for the work that you and your colleagues are doing to get the truth out, fighting for democracy. And again, Olga, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.